Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12, we're going to go through a couple of chapters today. We're going to finish the book up today, and then next week, for those of you that want to look ahead, we're going to be in Habakkuk, Habakkuk for a couple of weeks, and then um, we'll do Malachi, a couple other things. Um, I'm going to tell you right up front, I don't even like this lesson, but I'm going to teach it with enthusiasm because it's the Word of God. Amen? Have you ever studied the Bible and you said, I don't even like what that says. I do not like what that says. As a matter of fact, I'm debating about whether I'm going to obey it or not. Now, if you're really honest, you will look in the mirror and you will say, I have thought that. You know, one of these days we're getting around to obeying what we know. This is going to be one of those lessons. Just tell you, put your seatbelts on. We're going to do a deep dive. The book of Zechariah really is filled with prophecy. And the last uh, three chapters are, are, quote, the second burden or the second... Uh, oracle of, for that Zechariah has. It's interesting that mankind has always wanted to know the future. And we've always wanted to know the future so we could control it and profit from it. In the past, you know, people would slaughter sheep and they'd look at their livers. And of course, today we're far more sophisticated than that. Today we uh, look at the stars, we consult fortune tellers, we watch weather forecasting. Isn't, isn't that great? We read farmer's almanacs, we pay it, you know, very expensive consultants also we can find out what the future is going to bring. What's important to understand is everything you need to know about the future is already been written down, right? You've got it right there in your laps. Lord willing, in June, we're going to spend six months or so in Revelation and we'll really find out what God has to say about the future. But Zechariah 12 to 14 tells us about Israel's coming future and the future of the world. So here's the key idea. Brace yourself. God's plan for your life involves daily problems plus his divine presence. By the way, it's better than it was. I had put down daily pain. When you read John 16, 33, you'll get a little flavor of that. But God's plan for your life involves daily problems plus his divine presence. That's the equation. And I know many of you think, I don't like that equation. Can I have his divine presence without the daily problems? Yeah. <laughs> Those people who have no daily problems are room temperature. Everybody who is above room temperature has problems. It's part of life. We live in a broken planet. We're going to find that out. Let's pick up the story here, the parable in chapter 12, verse 3. It says, in that day, this is the future of Israel. This is what Israel has to look forward to. In that day, all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it, against Jerusalem and Judah. In that day is a phrase that is used over and over again. It's used 20 times in the book of Zechariah. 20 times it says, in that day. Just in the first two-thirds of the book of Isaiah, in that day shows up 39 times. In that day refers to the word of the, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a specific point in history when Jesus returns to planet Earth and establishes his kingdom. So when you see in that day or the day of the Lord, it's a specific date in time when Jesus is going to return to establish his kingdom. Most of the book of Revelation discusses that day. Revelation 6 through 19 is all about that day. The day of the Lord is the time period that you and I pray about every single time we repeat the Lord's Prayer. What do we say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we really know what we are asking for when we pray that prayer? We are asking God himself to destroy everything on planet Earth that does not conform to his perfect will. We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Are there things going on on planet Earth today that do not conform to God's perfect will? Well, duh, right? I mean, you look around. Do you think God has an opinion about those things? Do you think he's going to do something about them? Uh-huh. That's when we pray, thy kingdom come. We're saying, Lord, the last three words of the Bible are even so come quickly. We want him to come back quickly to set up his kingdom so we can be done with this evil and be done with this mess and be done with this separation. 
So the day of the Lord is coming when all the wrongs are going to be made right and perfect justice will be established by King Jesus. When Jesus returns, we won't need any stinking presidential elections, right? You won't need any Supreme Court rulings. You won't have any congressional legislation. Because King Jesus is the legislative branch, he's the executive branch, and he's the judicial branch. All in one. By the way, I'm not critiquing balance of power in government. We desperately need balance of power in government given human nature. So I'm not arguing with that. I'm saying it's going to be significantly, infinitely better when we have a monarchy. As long as you have God as the monarch. Human monarchy doesn't work real well. Winston Churchill once said, democracy doesn't work well either. It's just better than anything else we've tried so far. Right? So, sin will be dealt with, and King Jesus is going to rule planet Earth from his capital city in Jerusalem. God is moving all of history toward this day that Zechariah talks about, the day of the Lord. There's an old hymn tune that says, this is my father's world. We sing that nice little peppy tune. You know what it says? The reality is, is that you and I are just temporary house guests in his planet. Because God owns what? It all. God owns it all. This is his world, and we're house guests here at that point. Temporary house guests. You've all heard the phrase, it's the darkest just before the dawn. It's like a soldier on guard duty waiting for the daylight. The clock is very, very slow just before the light, correct? And you really want to be off guard duty so you can go to sleep. Israel is in that situation. Just before Jesus returns to earth to set up his kingdom, Israel's on the brink of extinction. Go to Zechariah 12, verse 3. It says, In that day, all the nations of the earth... I'm at the very end of this chapter 3, I mean uh, verse 3. All the nations of the earth will be gathered together against it. He's talking about Jerusalem and Judah. The picture here is just immediately before Jesus comes back, Israel will be surrounded by enemies on all sides. All the nations of the earth are committed to Israel's eradication. No one will stand with her. And when you look at this from a human standpoint, it looks like a complete genocide. Right? We've been here before. This is the Battle of Armageddon. It's described in Matthew 24, Revelation 9, Revelation 16, Revelation 19. From a human standpoint, there is no hope on planet Earth for the survival of Israel. There's no one who will rescue her. And we ask, how can God allow Israel to be surrounded by enemies to be brought to the very brink of extinction? The answer is God didn't allow it. He arranged it. Here's the principle. God not only allows storms in our life, He actually arranges them. Some of you are in the middle of a storm and you're fairly convinced that God is taking a nap. He needs to get up from His siesta and take care of business in your life. He is taking care of business in your life. He arranged the storm you're in right now. Chapter 14, go to Zechariah 14, verse 2. Why is Israel surrounded by enemies? This should shock you a little bit. Who brought all these enemy nations to Jerusalem to surround her for the purposes of threatening her very extinction? Chapter 14, verse 2. For I will, I, God, will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to do battle, and the city will be captured and the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. God actually brings all these enemy nations to fight against Israel so they could capture Jerusalem. Doesn't sound like God's taking Israel's problems away. Sounds like God is bringing the problems closer, actually making it worse. Some of you in this room, I know, are in situations that right now feel hopeless. There's no solution. You feel completely surrounded by unsolvable problems and unbelievable people. I was going to say something about else about those people, but I thought I would just stay with unbelievable. <laughs> you pray for help, 
and God responds, and it gets worse. And you pray for more relief, and it seems to get worse. You ever been there? Some of you are there right now. And we ask, if God loves me, why doesn't he take away this problem? Matthew 14, write it down, records the narrative about how Jesus fed the 5,000, shore of the Sea of Galilee, North Shore, late in the afternoon. After some of folks are in the room smiling, because you've been there, right? Uh, after he fed the 5,000, the multitudes wanted to make him king. I mean, wouldn't you want a monarch who could snap their fingers and feed 20,000 people instantly? I mean, wouldn't you follow somebody like that? Let me tell you, if you were on the brink of starvation because the typical peasant in Judea didn't exactly have a freezer full of food, it was pretty much day to day, right? So Jesus could provide all this bread. He was a popular guy. They wanted to make him king. So Jesus sent the multitudes away, and he sent his disciples where? Rowing across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. It's about seven miles wide, 13 miles long. They're on the north part of the Sea of Galilee because that's the only place there are fish. There are no fish in the bottom two-thirds of the lake, only the top third of the lake. And there are fish on the top third of the lake because there's warm water springs that come up from the seafloor. The Sea of Galilee is only 150 foot deep. And that's where the fish congregate, so that's where they fish. Unfortunately, or I guess fortunately, depending on, when you look on the northwest slope of the Sea of Galilee, there's two mountains and they form a gorge and there's a Venturi wind effect that comes through. So you have the warm weather from the Mediterranean flow through that one gorge. You have Mount Hermon in the northeast, 9,000 feet tall, snow covered, and the cold air comes through there. And they meet where? Right over the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So they have some really radical storms there. You can get four or five foot waves. Well, when you're in a 26 foot boat, that's a pretty big wave, right? Some of you are trying to visualize this. You wouldn't want to be swimming in four foot waves, trust me. So you know the story. He sends them to row across the Sea of Galilee. He goes up in the mountains to pray and there's a big wind, big waves. They were scared they were gonna drown because these folks thought the uh, sea was the abyss. And going under dark waters was a form of going to hell. I mean, it was just fearful. Here's the question. Why did Jesus send his disciples rowing their small 26-foot boat seven miles across the Sea of Galilee when he knew in advance there was going to be a storm? He sent them into the storm and they trusted him. And he knew there was going to be a storm. Why did he allow them to struggle against the wind and the waves almost all night long before he shows up at the fourth watch, somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning? Let them struggle all night long. It's only seven miles across. They rode for the better part of nine hours. No progress. Terrified. They're going to sink. You know, I'm sure they were praying when they thought those waves were going to sink their boat, right? What do you think they were praying? Save us. They were probably saying, where is Jesus when you need him? He just fed 5,000. Come on, right? He's not present. They've seen his power. They know he can do this deal, right? But he's not present. Jesus let them struggle. All night long. Question. Where was Jesus? Says he was at the top of the mountain. What was he doing up there? Who do you think he was praying for? Who was he praying for? He was praying for the disciples. We know that because he could see them from the top of the mountain. Because he loved them. I'm not saying that's all he was praying for. I promise you he was praying for his disciples. John 17, he said he prayed for them routinely. Right? I'm sure he prayed for other things besides the disciples. But I will promise you he was praying for his disciples. The principle is when you are in the storm, Jesus sees you, 
prays for you and plans for you. Most people are convinced that God doesn't see their troubles or understand their troubles. When you're in the middle of the storm. Because we believe the lie that if he did see our struggles in the storm, he would obviously stop the storm and take us out of the struggle. Right? That's how we define love. If God loved us, he would take either us away from the problem or he would take the problem away from us. Say amen. amen. Right? We struggle with the notion that God's going to watch us in the storm. Jesus is going to let us struggle. That doesn't compute for us in love. Love means he's going to solve the problem, not he's going to let us live with the problem. But he did. He does see, he does understand, and sometimes, according to his infinitely wise plan, God lets us struggle. Here's a question. Do you think Jesus knew what he was going to do when he went out on the water to meet him? Think he had a plan? Yeah. I'm pretty sure he had a plan. Give you another example. John 11. John 11 tells us that Jesus heard that his friend Lazarus was very, very sick. He got word. When Jesus heard the news, you would think... If he loves Lazarus, he would immediately go to where Lazarus was in Bethany and do what? Heal him. I mean, Jesus healed lots of people. We know he can heal people. I mean, of course you would. Love says you go heal. You relieve that pain right now. And it says that Jesus delayed two full days and let Lazarus die. Wow. So 48 hours later, Jesus shows up to Bethany and both Lazarus' sister Mary and Martha come to him and they say the same thing. And what is it they say? Lord, if you had just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Is that true? Jesus never disputed the statement. I, I, you know, my sense of things is if Jesus had been there, he probably would have healed Lazarus. But he chose not to. And the girls, his sisters, don't understand. If you love, how could you let Lazarus die? Why did Jesus send his disciples in the storm? Why did Jesus let Lazarus die? And in our lesson today, why is God going to call Israel's enemies to besiege enemy, to let them besiege Jerusalem and let them capture the city? And this is a God of love, right? The God of love. You want to write something down? I'll give you one of the most profound verses you need to memorize and keep in your heart because I promise you you're going to use it every day of your life. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. God is talking. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. The truth is, the heavens are infinitely higher than the earth, so God is infinitely wiser than us. God here says, you don't think like I think, so you don't act like I act. We, when, when we have major problems, when we have major pain, when we have suffering, from whose perspective do we view that? Ours. I'm not saying that's wrong. God says, see things from my point of view. See things from my point of view. An interesting question. <clears throat> what is God's perspective on my problem? Whatever it is. What, does God have a perspective on your problems? Does he have a point of view on, on the problems you have? Right? Say yes. You know he does. He's God. Another interesting question that sometimes is unanswerable. What is God's purpose in this problem? God has purpose in everything. 
he does not do things by accident. God never wakes up and says, whoops, I didn't see that coming. I can't believe that my son or daughter did that. Can you believe that, Gabriel? They did that. I never thought they would do that. I had such high hopes for them, and they've just disappointed me. God is never disappointed. He's never surprised. I'm not saying you can't break his heart, but he's never surprised. He knows us. He knows we're made of dust, right? So interesting question. What is God's perspective on the problem I'm facing? And what is God's purpose in this problem? Because he does have perspective and he does have purpose. And sometimes you will look at that and say, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Go back to Isaiah 55. God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I know he has a plan. I don't know what it is. But I trust him. I trust him. There's an old song. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. The reality is God sent the disciples into the storm so he could reveal his power over the storm. When he commanded the storm to be still. He let them struggle with the waves for most of the night, so nine hours later, Peter could walk on top of the waves. Matthew 24, 33 says that after Jesus rescued Peter, he commanded the storm to stop, and it did. Now, what did the disciples do? It says, those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying... You certainly are God's son. <coughs> Would they have said that if they hadn't seen him still the storm? So he allows the storm for the purpose of revealing his supernatural power and love. How would you know Jesus is the master of the storms of your life if you never have been in the storm? See, we want all the power of Jesus. We just don't want to be in a position where we need the power to survive. And Jesus loves us enough. He knows we need the storm. If you did not need the storm, you will not have the storm. If you have the storm, there's purpose in the storm. God arranged for you to be in the storm. And most of the time, Brad's prayers are, Oh God, still the storm. See, I think that's the solution. Calm water, that's the solution. You know what happens when there's calm water? You have to row. There's no sail, right? I mean, then I'm complaining, well, Lord, could you send a little breeze? This is a lot of work, you know? He said, well, you wanted calm water. You got calm water, right? See, Jesus let Lazarus die precisely so two days later he could raise Lazarus from the dead. He tells us that in the first part of John 11. There's purpose in why I'm letting him die. And the girls, his sisters, didn't understand it, and I wouldn't have either. No way. He showed himself Lord, not just over disease, but over death itself. Everybody knew Jesus could heal from sickness, right? I mean, they'd seen him do that. He had healed lots of people. If Jesus had showed up two days, you know, on schedule and not been late, like we think, he'd have healed Lazarus. And people would have gone, oh, he healed Lazarus. He healed lots of people. But when he raised Lazarus from the dead, do you think that got people's attention? There can be no miracle of resurrection without the sorrow of death. You've all heard the colloquial, you know what we say on the street? Everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to die. You know something? You want to go to heaven? You're going to die. Unless Jesus comes in raptures and we're going, come quickly, come quickly. Yeah, he's going to come when he's ready to come. But most American Christians say, Lord, rapture me out of here because I don't want to deal with any more storms. Right? He's going to come. When's he going to come? When he wants to. Right? He's going to come when the time is right. I remember as a kid, I'd more than a few times, I would break my parents' rules and I was going to get busted. And I said, Lord, you know, the rapture's a pretty good idea right about now. 
course, I'm thinking, you know, I never thought far enough to, to say, well, then you got to face your heavenly father, not just your earthly father. Maybe dad here on earth is a pretty good deal. There's a lot of stuff he doesn't know. You know I mean? Yeah. By the way, there's stuff your kids and grandkids do you don't want to know. You don't want to know. Here's the principle. God allows impossible problems in our lives so that he can reveal his supernatural love and power. Some of the reasons God allows problems that we don't have any solution to is so that we will look to him instead of ourselves and trust ourselves. You know, how many of you have had a, had a problem or a pain or a trouble that you're fairly convinced there is no solution for? How many of us have problems that we believe the only solution is the elimination of the problem? That's the solution. The solution for the problem is God take the problem away. I want you to know that God has many other solutions for your problems other than eliminating them. Those are the solutions are designed to make you like Jesus. It's almost like the oyster. You know, I think about, what does the oyster feel? You know, they, today we farm oysters, and these people called humans actually put sand inside the oyster and irritate them so they can produce a pearl. Don't you think that would really hack off the oyster? <laughs> I mean, these people are irritating me on purpose so they can get a pearl. And they're going to take the pearl away from me and give it to some blonde. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say some guilty husband's going to buy the pearl and buy off his lady love or whatever it happens to be, you know. Yeah, I know. I'm sticking both feet in. If we're going to go for it, let's just go for it. See, God has a solution for every one of our problems. Most of the time, it's just not our solution. Right? Just before Jesus returns to earth, we'll notice here, Israel is in a completely impossible situation. She's surrounded. She's doomed to failure. There is no human solution. And then God says, I'm going to intervene to save her. Go to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 9. He says, I will come, it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then he tells you how he's going to do it. Go to chapter 12, verse 2. Chapter 12, verse 2, he says, I'm going to rescue Jerusalem. I brought all these people here to invade and besiege her, and now I'm going to save her. And he tells you in verse 2 how I'm going to do it. I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples. The word picture, these word pictures are really vivid. It's people swaggering up to the bar for a drink and then staggering away from the bar, they're reeling. They're unable to swallow up Jerusalem. They're unable to consume her. They drank more than they can handle. They bit off more than they can chew. Right? Verse 3. He says, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. Now, I remember before barbells and weightlifting competitions, we would compete by lifting stones. How many of you saw Braveheart? Right? Remember that? Scottish games. We still do it today. Camber throw and stuff like that. You pick up a stone and you try and lift it. You try and heft it. The picture is you try and hoist the stone overhead. It's too heavy and it winds up falling back on you, crushing you. These nations that are going to try and destroy Jerusalem and Judah, he says, I'm going to make Jerusalem such a heavy stone it's going to fall back on you and crush you. You're going to destroy yourself in the process of trying to destroy Jerusalem. Verse 4. These surrounding troops, military encampments, every nation's against Jerusalem. Verse 4, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So this is not three blind mice, but it's blind horses. Horses here being a, a, a word picture of the military equipment and power. And he says, I'm going to panic your riders. I'm going to panic your soldiers. There's going to be chaos in the enemy camp. These armies that are surrounding Jerusalem are going to be panicked into chaos by God himself. So they're going to be blind and terrified and fearful and chaotic. Has God done that before? 
Gideon and the Moabites, right? How many times does God panic the enemies of Israel in past history? They're under siege and the lepers go out. Turns out, golly, the enemy troops heard a noise, got scared and left everything behind. God's done that before. He did it in the battle of 67 for Jerusalem as well, 1967. Verse 5. I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot among the pieces of wood and a flaming torch among the sheaves. See, before matches, you would, you would contain your hot coals in a fire pan. You would have hot coals in a fire pan, and you transported those hot coals from location if you were traveling, right? Because you needed fire and you didn't have matches. So the, the key operative here is you never let fire Go out. Fire had to be perpetual because you couldn't just get a match and start another one. You had to keep coals hot. So there was a fire pan to do that, to light your cooking fire. Jesus is saying, I'm not only going to weaken and severely injure and destroy Israel's enemies, but I'm going to supernaturally empower Judah and Jerusalem so that they will rapidly destroy their enemies. How rapidly? He says, like a torch among sheaves. When I was a kid, we used to burn dried tumbleweeds. You ever seen a pile of dried tumbleweeds? They burn like that, quickly, right? Kind of like smoking inside a fireworks booth. <laughs> Things can happen quickly. That's what he's talking about. He says, I'm going to empower you to the point where you will be like a hot knife through butter or like a torch among sheaves. Judah is going to be empowered by God to destroy your enemies on a very, very rapid basis. Now, if you read these last four or five verses, it's all about God working through people. I'm going to weaken the enemies of Judah. I'm going to strengthen Judah herself. If you go to chapter 14, verse 3, you see that God himself enters the battle for Jerusalem. Chapter 14, 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. So everything seems to be lost. Seems to be no hope. Jesus returns in person to destroy his enemies and save his people. Interesting frame of reference. You might want to write down John 16.33. This is a very instructive verse. In this life, it seems that there will always be battles and problems and pains and troubles and conflict and nasty people. Do you, do you see a lot of those things in the world? You see those in your life? Got, you got those too? Okay. Jesus said that was going to happen. John 16, 33. In this world, you have tribulation. Tribulation can translate troubles. In this world, you have troubles. You got troubles? Yep, you're in this world. Note that Jesus didn't say, if you happen to have troubles, or you might have trouble sometime in the future, right? He said, you have tribulation. You have trouble. That's present tense continuous action, which means you have trouble today. You will have trouble tomorrow, and you will have trouble the next day and the next day. It's an ongoing, continuous problems in this life. The only folks that have no trouble in this earth are those who are in the cemetery. If you are above room temperature and breathing, you have trouble Today. Yes? That's, that's, that's this world. We live in a broken world separated from God as a result of the fall, and the world is not reconciled to him. The world is at war with him. Right? So if you understand the paradigm that says we're in a war, we're in a battleground, then you say, oh yeah, we're in a battleground, there's trouble. Right? We've talked about the, the paradigm of Disneyland versus Afghanistan. It's not the same place. We ain't in Disneyland. We're in Afghanistan. That's where we are. You know something? If you fix the troubles of today, 
tomorrow's coming. You know what tomorrow brings? More trouble. Jesus said, stop worrying about tomorrow. You know why? This is so encouraging. This is so encouraging. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So you got a recipe for trouble today. You know something? Tomorrow's got its own batch. Baker's dozen waiting to come your way tomorrow. And you know something? You are going to decide whether, by God's help, you are going to face those troubles in His power and His strength, or whether you're going to face them by yourself, or whether you're going to run away from them and drink and all whatever people do to try and deal with them. But those problems are going to come. It's promised, right? Jesus didn't say, don't worry, be happy. There'll be no trouble tomorrow. He didn't promise that. He said, what? In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. What's next? I have overcome the world. Here's the principle. In this life, Jesus promised us pain plus his presence and power. So act on that fact. In this life, Jesus promised us pain plus his presence and his power. So act on that fact. See, joy is not the absence of troubles. Joy is knowing the one who has overcome them. Right? By the way, when he says, take courage, <clears throat> is that a suggestion or a command? It's a command. It's in the imperative mood. Take courage. It's, it's a command. I want you to take courage. But he says, take courage in light of the reality that you have a relationship with one who has overcome the world. So you can be more than conquerors because I already conquered. And you belong to me by faith. Make the decision to act on the fact that Jesus has already overcome every problem in this world. So when the nation of Israel seems doomed to destruction in Zechariah 14, Jesus returns to save Israel. How does he save Israel? Look at verse 4. Zechariah 14, 4. And in that day, this is the day of the Lord, this is the return of Jesus, his feet, Jesus' feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, across the brook. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half of the mountain will move toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So here's the context. <clears throat> Israel is completely surrounded by all the nations. She stands alone. Verse 2 says she's been invaded. Jerusalem's been captured. They're plundering the city, raping and pillaging, and there's no way of escape. And then and only then does Jesus show up. How many of you have ever thought that maybe God was a little slow in fixing your problem? Ever had that conversation with him? Come on, we all have. We've all said, Lord, I know you can. So why don't you? How about today? This would be a good day to deal with my issue. And by the way, that schmuck that's my problem, you can take him to heaven if you love him that much. <laughs> you live with them, right? You try it. You think it's so easy living with blah, blah, blah? You don't want him in heaven either, do you? Yeah, yeah, you've had this conversation. I know you have. Come on. There's a reason he's down here. Yeah, you stuck him with me because you didn't want to face it. All right. We, we, we have these conversations. And those of you that don't, somebody's got a question? Yes, Jill. Yeah. Jill first and Darren. Darren. Okay, Darren. Well, 
that. I'm sure. <coughs> How many times has Jerusalem already been leveled at this point in history today? It's been a rather focal point of um, Satan for a number of millennia, yeah. And so when this prophecy was written, where was it in history with respect to when the Romans leveled? I mean, it, it had to have been before the Romans leveled Jerusalem. Was it before the Persians leveled Jerusalem? Or no, no. Post-Persia. This, this is probably written somewhere... Um, 400 and change BC. So we hadn't hit AD 70. We hadn't hit that yet at that point in time. But we hadn't hit all the nations yet, and we don't have Jesus returning under AD 70 Rome at that point in time. So good point in terms of timing when that happened at that point. When Jesus comes back now, he's going to land on the Mount of Olives. What's significant about the Mount of Olives? It's where he left. Yeah, well said. That's where he ascended from, and he's going to come back the same way, and he's going to land in the same spot. And what happens when he lands? You get a supernatural earthquake, and it literally splits the mountain in two. And when you split a mountain in two, what's in between them? A valley. So this valley didn't exist before, but there's a very, very big valley that exists and Jesus has made a way of escape for Israel, and they, they flee from their enemies through this valley that didn't exist before he set his foot on the mountain. I'm reading this, and 1 Corinthians 10, 13 comes to me, and it says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide what? The way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. A really good one to remember. For some of us in this room, the biggest temptation we face today is the temptation to doubt God. The temptation to doubt His goodness, to doubt His power, to doubt that He cares. You know, the truth of it is, none of us here want deliverance from the storms of life. We want to avoid the storms altogether. I don't want to be delivered from the storm. I don't even want to see it. I want to read about it. You know, on the East Coast, they've had a hurricane. I'm cool with that. They can have the hurricane, as long as it doesn't touch me, right? We falsely believe that God is not a good God because he allows difficulties in our life. And we talked about this here several months ago. Don Moen wrote a song back, way back in the day. It says, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. Israel's way of escape, this valley, did not exist before Jesus returned. There's all kinds of ways of escape in your life that will not exist until Jesus is in your life, front and center. And even then, he waited nine hours for the disciples on the storm, two days for Lazarus before he raised him from the dead. How did Jesus create a way of escape for Israel in this story, this narrative, this prophecy? What's it say? Through a terribly destructive earthquake. Everybody wants the valley of escape. Nobody wants the earthquake. You ever notice that? God, provide a way of escape. God, I need a solution. And he gives us a solution. We say, do you have any other ones? <laughs> really? I mean, you're throwing me from the fat into the fire, right? I mean, it's getting worse, not better. I asked for a solution, meaning a pill to solve the pain. And you're making it worse. Your solution is turn the heat up. Really? So, there's no way of escape. God creates a way of escape, but he has to do an earthquake to do it. He chooses to do an earthquake to do it. I know people where God used the earthquake of prison to create the way of escape from the bondage of drug addiction. Prison saved their life. They would be dead if they hadn't gone to prison. I know people where God used the earthquake of a cancer diagnosis 
to create the valley of escape from a self-centered, godless eternity into a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. I also know where God uses the earthquake of a medical diagnosis not for the benefit of the person with the diagnosis, but for others who are watching. And I'm telling you, I used to struggle with that. Still do. Don't understand. God, this person, this person loves you. They're obedient. They're following their examples. And they get the diagnosis. And at the end of the day, it's not about them. It's not that they're doing anything wrong. It's not that God even wants to correct anything in their life. It's he wants to show his power through how they deal with a life-threatening illness for the benefit of other people who are watching. And you know what my flesh says? I don't love those other people that much. <laughs> I don't, because I'm selfish. But he does. He does. Some of us are going to be experiencing storms in our life, and the storm is not about us, and it's not for us. It's for others. Maybe for your kids, maybe for your grandkids, maybe for your neighbors. They want to know how you steward suffering. What kind of a steward are you of your suffering? How will you manage it with God's help? Are you going to whine and complain and say, God, why me? Why not my neighbor? Or are you going to say, this is God's plan for me, and by his grace and power I will submit to it and respond to it in the way that will honor him? And he'll do what he wants to do with it. He'll take it away when he's ready to. And if I live with it the rest of my life, I live with it the rest of my life. We went through Esther here a few months ago. Four words in Esther. Five. If I perish, I perish. You know something? If I die of cancer, I die of cancer. If somebody drops a nuclear bomb someplace, they drop a nuclear bomb someplace. Is God sovereign over those circumstances? We really got to ask ourselves, is, is God master of the storm in my life? Now, you know he is. You know he is. But there are times when the, when the pain level is going to get to the point in time where we're going to question him. We're going we're gonna to hold him to our standard. We're going to say, if you're God, then do what I tell you to do. He's not going to do what you and I tell him to do because he knows best. Amen? Father always knows best. I know people where God has used the earthquake of a bitter divorce to make a way of escape into a life of peace and hope and joy in the middle of the pain, not the removal of the pain. You know what occurred to me yesterday is that Peter was walking on top of the waves while the storm was raging. We, you know, in our mind we say, Peter's walking on the water, and it's like glass. He hadn't stilled the storm yet. Peter's walking on top of the waves. That could have been an interesting balancing act. I hope his inner ear was working pretty well, you know, trying to stay upright and all. Had a little supernatural help with that too, I'm sure. But my point is, we all want to walk on top of the water. We just don't want the storm that produces the waves. You know something? They go together. They go together. If everything is calm, you don't need any supernatural help, do you? You got it under control. Mark. <laughs> yep, he looked, Mark says, and it's well said, he, he, he was on top of the water doing fine as long as he stayed focused on Jesus. When he focused on the circumstances, he got scared. And some of us in this life, in this room, have circumstances that are scary. They are scary. Jesus said, be of good courage, take courage, I have overcome the world. The problems in your life, whatever they happen to be, the troubles, the pains, etc., are there for a reason. 
Our job is not to demand that God explain to us because if he tried, we would argue. <laughs> Just like our children do. Have your children ever said, why, 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 why? And you say, because, and you give them a reason, what do they do? Well, why, why, why about that? Right? That's us. At the end of the day, we know that God loves us. He demonstrated that on the cross. We also know we need a philosophy of life, a theology of life that can live with troubles. And this culture of ours lies to us every day and we believe it. If only you have the new car, the new clothes, the money, the health, the love of your life, all this other stuff, what? You will never have trouble. That's baloney. It's absolutely a lie. And if we believe and we expect that, then what do we do? How come I got trouble? God must be gone. I must be in sin. Something is wrong. Folks, trouble is normal. That's normal. Normal, right? Normal. It's what it is. Until we go home, we're going to have trouble. But we have God himself walking with us through the storm. Amen? Say amen. Come on. Some of you are struggling with that now. He's there. He has not abandoned us. He has not abandoned us. Okay, here's our summary. God's plan for your life involves daily problems plus his divine presence. You know what's really hard? If we didn't have daily problems, we probably would ignore his divine presence. Ooh, I hate that. But I think it's true. I think it's true. Matthew 14 and, of course, Zechariah 14 too. God not only allows storms in our life, he actually arranges them. Matthew 14, when you are in the storm, Jesus sees you, prays for you, and plans for you. Chapter 14, 2 and 12, God allows impossible problems in our life so that he can reveal his supernatural love and power. John 16, 13, in this life, Jesus promised us pain plus his presence and his power, so act on that fact. And chapter 14, verse 3 to 5, God may open a way of escape for you through an earthquake in your life. Don't run from the earthquake. It might be the valley of escape. Don't run from the earthquake. When you pray and God responds with an earthquake, that's not judgment. That may be blessing. Although we're in the middle of an earthquake, it's terrifying, right? Everything's falling down. Everything's falling apart. That could be his way of escape. He created the way of escape for Israel with an earthquake, and I'm sure a lot of buildings fell down. I'm sure most of the city fell down. But he provided a way of escape. So when you pray for a way of escape... Don't evaluate God's going to do the way of escape you want. He's going to do the way of escape that is best. Amen? All right. I do love you guys. I really love you guys. Now that you know, do. Read ahead. Next two weeks we'll be in Habakkuk, Lord willing.